0: About 18 months ago, I sat down with my friend Abdul, Abdul Bakar. He immigrated to Kansas City from Somalia more than 20 years ago and is currently completing his PhD. I was a part of a team from Country Club Christian Church. We were seeking to strengthen our partnership with refugees arriving in Kansas City. Abdul was leading the refugee resettlement movement for Della Lam. And already, we were involved with him. We were teaching English. We were setting up apartments for families arriving. Abdul, we said, tell us, tell us some other ways we could help. Nightly, we see on the news that our country is not welcoming to refugees, but that's not how our church feels. We welcome those who come. How can we do more? Abdul sat back in his chair, he began to dream. Refugees, he said, have experienced great trauma. They need to heal. Music, he said, music has the power to heal. Music can transform the pain of the past and bring hope for a future. He said, I imagine that we could form an interfaith choir made up of people from all different countries, all different religious backgrounds. We could have people from Country Club Christian Church singing with refugees newly arrived from Nigeria. We could sing together. He said, we could sing, well, you know, like songs of peace. We could go out into the community, said Abdul, and we could sing you know, at Crown Center and at lots of different places. And when we would sing, not only would the refugees heal, but the people in the community, they would see that people who are different skin color and different religions and different countries, that they can come together. He said, we will sing at the White House. (laughs) Well, we did too, we laughed. We got in the car and we drove away that day Barbara was there and we laughed at Abdul because we knew how hard it was going to be to get just a small choir together to sing a few songs at church or over at Dalai and we knew that Abdul's large-scale dream bordered on the ridiculous we knew yeah it could do some good but it probably wasn't going to save the world or sing at the White House, this choir he dreamed about. Still though, as we drove away that day, there was something within Abdul's eyes, the way they sparkled when he talked about this dream that made my heart sing, and I felt a little small. I wondered, how could this man who has been such through such horrific tragedy, dream these big dreams. And why am I not dreaming big dreams? What gets in the way, do you suppose, of you dreaming big dreams, of us dreaming large-scale dreams? You and I are sitting here this morning because some other folks almost 100 years ago dreamed large-scale dreams. Before, there was a single house within a mile south, that's south, right, of this church, before there were any houses that direction, only a couple of dozen houses west of us, and maybe close to a hundred houses if you combined all the ones east and north of us, before any of that was developed. Some dreamers decided to build a church here. There was a woman who was a charter member of that church who grew up just about six blocks away from here, before there were actual blocks. And she remembers waking up in the morning and seeing the cattle grazing over here. And one morning she woke up and there were tents everywhere. And overnight, soldiers had moved in and made it a training ground as they prepared to go off to World War I. Already, three churches had been planted in this area and none of them had taken off. It did not look like a promising place for a church. But 74 folks banded together, began meeting upstairs over in Brookside above above a drugstore, and then they invited Dr. Combs, before he was wheelchair-bound, as Bill remembers him, but when he was already aging and getting up in years, to come out and preach for them. He was reluctant to come. But he did come, and on the first Sunday that he preached over there in Brookside, 57 people joined the church. And when he retired, 21 years later, there were 2,000 members. Dr. Combs wrote his autobiography in 1944, two years after he retired from here, and he said that what accounted for the phenomenal growth of this congregation was the large-scale dream of its founders. How do we dream large-scale dreams today? What gets in the way? What inhibits us from dreaming? A closer look at the spiritual journey of our founding pastor might give us a few clues. George Hamilton Combs was born in Kentucky. He and his wife, Martha, came to Kansas City for him to pastor a very small church over in the northeast part of Kansas City, just off of Independence Boulevard. This church grew and eventually became the gorgeous Independence Boulevard Christian Church with its Tiffany stained glass windows, and it is still the current site of Micah ministry where we serve food to the hungry once a month, usually about 800 folks gathering there. When World War I broke out, George and Martha Combs sent all three of their sons into war. He describes the horrible moment of dropping off each of their sons down at Union Station. They said goodbye, he said, and the light of the sun was snuffed out. He writes, war, no longer a distant horror, but come to shadow us when we worked, to dine with us when we sat at table, to stuff with thorns the very pillows upon which we slept. Soon, George Hamilton Combs also went to war as a volunteer chaplain. One night, he slept near the battlefield in France, listening as the cannons were fired and trying to catch a little bit of sleep in a dugout with some other American officers. It was pouring down rain and their blankets were starting to get wet. Late that night, a soldier returned to the dugout and found that his bedroll was completely soaked. When the soldier complained, another officer replied, Oh, take Bill's blankets. He got bumped off today. His blankets are still dry. Combs then traveled back across the French countryside, headed to Paris, and on that return trip, he noticed a sign marking the entrance to a village. The village had been completely destroyed. All that was left was a gash in the earth, and he read the sign leading in to that village that was no longer, and he realized that it was there in that village where he had slept just a few nights before. Combs came home to Kansas City and sunk into a deep depression. It was the most trying year of his life. His body and his soul ached. Combs had dreamed that the war would bring lasting peace and justice and a renewed sense of unity. He dreamed of democracy in a world that would champion the rights of the poor throughout the globe. Before coming home, back to the united states he sat with others on a bruised battlefield in europe and they went around the circle and shared that they knew beyond a shadow of a doubt that when they came home there would be no longer any such thing as the methodists and the presbyterians and the baptists but everyone would be just christian and god would be the only ruler of a united church but when he came home Nothing had changed. Everything seemed the same. He fell into despair, and he resigned from the pulpit where he had served 20 years on Independence Boulevard. He was 56 years old, and he calls this chapter of his autobiography when the stars fell out of the sky. After the despair, at age 57, George Hamilton Combs was swept up in a large-scale dream. Maybe we must face the despair before the large-scale dreams emerge. Maybe we must know the failure and sorrow of life before we discover the audacity to dream. The scripture tells a very similar story to the story of George Hamilton Combs. It is the story of the prophet Jeremiah. The prophet Jeremiah lived approximately 600 years before the time of Jesus, and he too witnessed the horrors of national destruction. The economic system of Israel had collapsed. Imagine the worst stock market crash ever. The temple was destroyed. Imagine today if the Vatican, the White House, the Congress and the United Nations were all bombed on the same day. That's how they felt. The political system had lost all credibility. Imagine, well maybe you don't even need to imagine, the best and the brightest minds had been deported either to Babylon or to Assyria, and those just sound like places over there, and so imagine if a couple of million of us were deported to Mexico and a few more million deported to Canada. It was a crisis that they had never known. In the middle of what felt like God abandoning them, the prophet Jeremiah steps in and sends them this poem of love, a poem of love from God, inviting them to dream of how God will rebuild their homeland, their spiritual lives, their public life, their temple. Jeremiah proclaims, you are still God's people and God is still your God. Despair no more. One scholar notes that the question behind this beautiful poem from Jeremiah, the the question that the people must have been asking in order for him to write this beautiful poem was the question, will we fail? We have failed before. Will we fail again? If we start over rebuilding, what will keep us from failing again? And Jeremiah says, no, you won't. You will not fail. Why? Because something new has happened. This time, God will write God's law on your heart. The law will not be on a stone tablet that can be broken, but engraved on your heart. And note that Jeremiah does not say God will write on your hearts as if God will write on Mary's heart and Becky's heart and Mike's heart. No, it is not about writing on individual hearts. The prophet says God will write on our heart, our heart, our collective heart, the heart of our community. The heart of a congregation, the heart of a nation, God refuses to let go of the people that God created, and therefore, because God is riding upon us this law of love, we will absolutely rise. Can our fears get in the way of our ability to dream large-scale dreams, or does God insist upon dreaming anyway? For years, I had heard the story of Archbishop Oscar Romero in El Salvador. Maybe you've heard about him, too. We talk about him often on mission trips because he championed the rights of the poor in Latin America, particularly in El Salvador. And I had heard the story about how on March 24, 1980, he was standing in his pulpit in the congregation where he served, and he was preaching, one must not love oneself so much as to avoid getting involved in the risk of life that history demands of us. So he was preaching these words of challenge and risk and dream, and then he turned from the pulpit and he walked over towards the communion table, and a gunman took aim through the doorways of the church and assassinated him. But the part of the story that I had not known until reading recently more of his story in a book called The Way of Love was that this bold priest named Romero had begun his time as a Catholic priest, as a strong ally of the repressive political regime of El Salvador. In that time, half of the land in El Salvador was owned by about a dozen families, and the leaders of the church and the leaders of the government were living in relative luxury while the masses were struggling daily for enough bread to eat. When Romero was elected archbishop, the politicians in El Salvador rejoiced because they knew that they could count on him to not ruffle any feathers, to not stir up the people, to not challenge the government to work for justice for the poor. He would not push for change. And they were right he didn't until one of his very best friends another priest was assassinated because of his outspoken advocacy for the rights of the poor romero was so upset that he requested an investigation and his request was denied by the government and so romero began to think anew he began to think that a church founded on the love of god could not stand idly by while its priests were attacked for standing up for God's love for the poor. No longer did Romero see the love of God as something to preach. It was now written on his heart. And so he began preaching a new message, a message of God's radical love, and his preaching was so popular that his preaching was aired on the radio, and it was the most popular radio show in all of El Salvador because it was not just written on his heart, but on the heart of the people. And it was that great love that led the people there to dream large-scale dreams. What about us? What are our large-scale dreams today? Do we dream of a society where there are no teenage suicides ever? Do we dare to dream of a nation filled with racial harmony? Could we dream together about a way to eradicate poverty in Kansas City? Sometimes my husband and I take an Uber from our house up here downtown, especially if we're going to a concert and parking is complicated and the weather is bad. And one day last January, we Ubered downtown to the Folly. As we passed the church, it was lit up, it was beautiful. And the driver said, what a pretty church. And I paused and I waited to hear what the driver would say next. What would you want that driver to say? Would you want to hear the driver say, what a pretty church? You know, I think that's the church where everyone is welcome. What a pretty church. I heard that that church solved the opioid crisis in the United States. What a pretty church. I hear they have this amazing program for autistic children there. What a pretty church. You know, I I drove past here last Sunday and those folks were singing so loudly, they must absolutely love God. You know what I want to hear that driver say? What a pretty church. Did you know that that church started an interfaith choir made up of refugees and church members? And just last week, I saw on the news they sang at the White House.